Welcome, everyone, to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Bill Galston of Brookings, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is numbers cruncher extraordinaire Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, uh, who will give us the data to help us understand our crazy world. And we are going to begin with the presidential debate and the state of the Democratic race. Uh, in preparation for Saturday's South Carolina primary, the Democrats uh, debated or you could say debated one another uh, on Tuesday night. Before getting into the substance, I want to ask everyone whether they are as exasperated as I about the nature of these so-called debates, which are shouting sessions, and uh, when the moderators lose control as they did in this one, and or even at their best, um, ask complex questions of public policy and demand, as they, for example, when Senator Klobuchar was asked about the problems of the rural poor, and she had 75 seconds to respond. Does anybody feel as I do that perhaps with the demise this year, which we all hope it, it will happen, uh, the demise of the caucus system, that we could see the demise of this kind of absurd clown show debate? Well, I'll tell you one thing, Mona, it made me long for the calm and gentle tone of the Trump tweets. <laughs> it, okay. You know, I mean, it was it was such a disgrace. Um, it was just it was difficult to listen to. I heard Mike uh, Bloomberg later talk about his own sort of reluctance to jump in at several times that he wasn't brought up that way where mm -hmm. you talk over people. Uh, most of us around this table were not brought up that way. And it helped no one. Again, I think uh, Warner, uh, Warren rather really uh, hurt herself um, by her aggressiveness. But none of them really came off looking uh, particularly presidential. I, I just thought it was, uh, I don't know, it was just made me despair for the future of our country. I mean, it isn't as if there are not alternatives, right? I mean, Bill, they, they had a town hall uh, format on CNN this week where they were interviewing candidates one at a time. Um, hard to see why that isn't one possible alternative. There are any number of alternatives that would be better <laughs> than this steady diet of multi-candidate debates. It's one thing to be fighting over the issues. It's a different thing to be struggling for airtime. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, if you have a constrained time and multiple candidates, and especially in a high-pressure debate like the one this week, where a number of candidates had everything on the line, the continuation of their campaigns, the outcome was almost inevitable. And I would happily exchange the debate format for a series of one-on-one -on -one town halls, provided that the journalists were up to the task of really challenging the candidates in a way that would be fair to the candidates because they'd have the time to respond in depth. If the 
By the way, they need not be journalists. That's one thing that we could consider. Whoever the moderators are. Yeah. I was just one one shorthand. But I share the mixed emotions of of disgust and despair. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If that's the issue. (laughs) Damon or Brian, do you want to weigh in on this and or before we get to the substance of it? Uh, I don't. I don't have much to add other than uh, yeah. I've watched. What is this? Was this the eighth, the Tenth. ninth debate? I mean, it, it, they're coming now, fast and furious. We have another one now. Uh, just been scheduled for March fifteenth. It's like um, just this endless gauntlet of like beauty contests where they all stand up there and take their turns and then attack each other. Um, I, so I agree that uh, I would be happy to try almost anything else now. Like, uh, you know, we don't have to resolve it's going to now be some other one thing for the, till the end of time. How about we just experiment a little bit and just try different formats? Um, I, I think would be wonderful, and I can't imagine anyone objecting, frankly. <laughs> you used the phrase beauty content. It's <laughs> a strange concept yeah. of beauty on display. I know, it's ugly true, contest. but ugly content. <laughs> but when it, when it starts and you just see them all lined up there with the kind of glowing screens with red, white, and blue, it, <sighs> it has a kind of weird cross between uh, a political contest and a beauty contest. There's something to that, I <laughs> think. But Mona, I'd like to pick up on something you said, which is the role of the journalists and whether or not they're they're always up to uh, the task. Uh, I did watch at least a couple of the town halls. I watched the Bloomberg town hall. I watched the Biden town hall. And Bloomberg, whom, as you know, I've been sort of leaning toward in the Democratic field and hoping that maybe he'll be the nominee and might be actually a chance of defeating Trump. But I was extremely disappointed in um, his performance, not in terms of style. I think he did very well in the town hall format. But he was questioned about China in his comments about uh, whether or not uh, China uh, was an autocracy. Um, and he, you know, during the debate, he indicated, well, the, you know, Xi Jinping is, is uh selected by the Politburo. Well, who selects the Politburo? (laughs) But so in the town hall, he was pressed a little bit on that. And they said, well, you know, I'm not sure that the the Chinese want our style democracy. Well, tell that to the people in Hong Kong. I mean, really? You know, it is, it's, it's an epidemic. I mean, we have a president who is a uh, nominally a Republican, uh, who is a well-known praiser uh, and admirer of autocrats the world over. Um, and you have uh, the uh, as a front runner in the Democratic contest, Bernie Sanders, um, who never met a left wing autocrat that he didn't admire. Um, and you have Bloomberg, the supposed a supposed alternative, uh, who um, who also had you know finds uh, reasons to to whitewash the uh, the Chinese communist regime. It's just unbelievable. Uh, how um, how many people have forgotten our most basic principles? Um, but Biden, by the way, is not guilty of this. He's guilty of many things, but he's right. been very consistent and very strong in pushing back on uh, any coddling of of dictators. So, well, except when he was vice president and nodded on when Obama had <laughs> had so many nice things to say about Cuba. But uh, 
but that wasn't him personally, and uh, so he is one. And and of course, you know, some of the other candidates have been have been better, but they they don't seem to uh, to be doing well. So let's let's get into some of the things that got discussed and and uh, ask you for your responses. Um, in addition to the format being abominable, um, the the content of what gets said in these environments where there's really very little opportunity for thoughtful give and take. Um, the minute that two candidates begin to question one another or challenge one another, it's up, time's up. Um, and so you get statements such as um, Bernie Sanders uh, saying that uh, 87 million people are uninsured or underinsured. Well, I love that weasel word, underinsured. What does that mean? I mean, that, that is so open to interpretation. And most of the figures that I have seen suggest there are about 25 million people in the country who lack health insurance. By the way, there weren't supposed to be any after we passed Obamacare, but never mind. Um, that's the figure that's, that's a real number. And then this other sort of so inflating it the way he does is purely on the basis of his definition of what uninsured means. Uh, Brian? Yeah, this is why watching these debates is is a painful experience for people who follow policy because Sanders, for instance, makes up numbers. Uh, The 87 million he makes up. He also keeps saying that workers haven't gotten a raise in 40 years, not even a nickel. Now, I will say to anybody listening to this, if you haven't gotten a raise from your job of even a nickel in the last 40 years, it might be time to look for a new job. Uh, The statistics show that it's just emphatically not true. But what these debates reward is quickly dropping a statistic and then hitting somebody else. And then if somebody hits you back, you can just usually what Sanders will do is find one study to cite. Mm -hmm. And it can be the most refuted bad study that has been dismissed by every expert. But you throw out your one stat, your one discredited study, and then when the other people try to dispute you, it just becomes a shouting match. Mm -hmm. And so the debate ends up rewarding obnoxiousness and it ends up rewarding bogus statistics. And that that's what we end up getting. It's a boon for fact checkers. (laughs) By the way, uh, that Yale study that he kept citing uh, is by one of his former um, uh, staffers. So that maybe would have been relevant to uh, to reveal. Um, Let's talk a bit more about Sanders and money. the Progressive Policy Institute of all people, not exactly the Heritage Foundation, okay, says that the cost of Sanders' agenda, his whole agenda, not just Medicare for all, would be $53 trillion over 10 years, and that his plans to pay for it, which we should also talk about what those would be, um, are, would, would only come to between 28 and $42 trillion, uh, so leaving a huge hole. Um, Brian, you've done a lot of work on this. So um, what's what's your um, sense about, first of all, just the just the spending that if you can even put a number on it, Sanders doesn't even really bother. He doesn't. But when he's asked, you know, how much will this all cost? Oh, I'm not going to get into nickels and dimes, he says. (laughs) Right. Sanders said on 60 Minutes, he doesn't even know how much his own agenda costs. Uh, The PPI study was well done. It was done by a good friend of mine, uh, Ben Ritz. I get a number much higher. I get $97.5 trillion over 10 years for the Sanders agenda. And the main difference between me and Ben's number 
is he does not account for the job guarantee. Uh, Bernie Sanders has said that anyone who wants can get a $15 an hour job from the government full-time with benefits. Anybody. Now, 42% of the workforce in America currently earns under $15 an hour and would thus be getting a raise. Even if half of those people go into the job guarantee and you add the unemployed, you get $30 trillion over 10 years for the job guarantee. And you have 45 million people who are now working for the government in make-work jobs. Imagine what that'll do for productivity, moving people out of the private sector and into government make-work jobs. So if you add that and you use uh, some slightly different numbers in healthcare, you get $97.5 trillion. Now, that number is too big to imagine. But overall, federal spending would hit 70% of the economy, which blows away anything Scandinavia has ever done. The numbers are, are insane. And the taxes, you know, I think Ber Bernie's pay for is add up to $42 trillion using his own numbers. I get much less. Mm -hmm. And and he doesn't account for any ill effects of his tax increases, right? I mean, those tax increases could uh, dampen productivity, right? Sanders actually assumes that $40 trillion in tax increases will increase economic growth. Ah, okay. He assumes a couple trillion dollars in higher tax revenues from the higher growth of doubling all taxes. Actually, I mean, so that, here's an example of what he does on taxes. It's amazing. Sanders assumes $3 trillion in taxes on the fossil fuel industry, which is more than their entire profits. Mm. In fact, it's more than the entire market capitalization of the entire, G, entire energy sector. He then... After taxing, so sorry, I just uh, got laughed there for a second. <laughs> then it's a very appropriate sound effect. After Sam. taxing them out of business, he then assumes that the energy sector will add twenty million jobs, which will in turn bring in more tax revenues. Oh. I mean, this is. I mean, uh, there's there's no economic theory behind any of this. No, I mean, it's this is just made insanity. up. And you left out the cost of throwing all the energy executives in jail and providing. <laughs> oh <them>. yes, <laughs> yeah. oh yes. No, this is. And by the way, I mean, you know, for people who say, um, well, you know, Sanders at least would follow the rule of law. That proposal of his, among others, uh, including his admiration for people like Castro and and uh, Daniel Ortega and so forth. That particular proposal does not exactly smack of respect for the rule of law. He's saying that he wants to prosecute energy executives for actions they took in the past that contributed to climate change. Prosecute them under what law? A law he's going to try to pass now or under some imaginary law? But you know, the we have I, a word for that. It's called ex post facto, and well, I think it's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional, <laughs> exactly. And, um, and, you know, and furthermore, the idea, look, people in a complex society, there are lots of trade-offs. We uh, have, you know, collectively as a society, you could say we haven't gotten to the point yet where we're willing to pay the price for an all solar wind uh, economy. By the way, I, I'm for nuclear, but leave that aside. Most people on the left are not. But um, but OK, so we're not there yet. So all of us collectively have decided that we want to use fossil fuels. We buy them. People sell them to us. And now we're going to we're go Bernie Sanders is going to say, 
I'm going to prosecute people for selling a legal product that other people wanted to buy because of my concept of morality. I mean, it's a, it's horrifying. Well, there is a sort of totalitarian streak in that. But part, part of the problem, it isn't just that they don't understand numbers. It isn't just that they're not policy wonks like you, Brian. These are people Brian who, is the best one. He's a great one. He's a great one. But but they don't have practical experience in the real world holding down the kind of jobs that most Americans hold or uh, being employers of other people. They just don't have the kind of practical everyday experience of what it does to make our economy work. And, and, you know, everybody remembers McGovern and his famous Mm -hmm. quote. Uh, He was, you know, uh, in 1972, he lost terribly, decided he's going to go open a Bread and uh, bed and breakfast in uh, in somewhere in New England, and he said, you know, suddenly when he realized all the rules and regulations, that he wasn't so happy that he had been in favor of all that stuff then, because he realized it's very hard to create jobs. And you're right. I mean, what is it? Are they going to? Are we going to not just put up walls to keep people out? We're going to have walls to keep people in. There's nothing that stops a corporation from picking up stakes and moving to another part of the world that is more conducive uh, to being able to make profits. Uh, It would just tank the U.S. economy. Yeah. Okay, Damon, um, I have detected a tiny bit of softening in your anti-Bernie position over the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to throw a few things at you, and then I want to hear your response. Um, Okay, so um, looking at November... Um, Bernie Sanders needs to win, the, any Democrat needs to win the state of Pennsylvania, most people say, in order to win the election. Um, a goodly number of union members in, Pencil, in Western Pennsylvania work in the fracking industry, in the ener- energy industry, heavily fracking. Um, Bernie wants to, um, he wants to abolish fracking. Uh, arguably, those voters went for Trump in 2016, in part because Hillary Clinton had promised to kill coal. Um, he uh, wants to let felons vote. He wants to decriminalize border crossing and give those border crossers government-sponsored health insurance, and he would abolish ICE. Um, just even if you're not thinking about any of his absurd policy prescriptions that we've already been going over, in terms of being able to defeat Trump, uh, how does all that strike you? Well, um, I am not going to attempt here or anywhere else a kind of um, a defense of Sanders as a candidate kind of in his own terms because uh, he doesn't represent my kind of politics and I think he's wrong on an awful lot. And I agree with everyone who's concerned about his electability. I don't think he's necessarily as unelectable as some think, but that's a a relatively minor point. The softening that you think you've detected, I think, mainly in uh, Twitter uh, little tweets (laughs) that I've done in the last few days, mainly have to do with... um, how one can oppose him as a kind of member of the democratic establishment, uh, kind of the superdelegates and uh, other members of the institutional party. And my sense is that if he does manage to win a plurality of the delegates, that he has to be given the nomination. And even if it means that the Democrats lose, I think that that would be preferable to trying to wrest it away from him 
at the convention. So I sort of think some of the people who are plotting uh, strategies to, uh, there was a big article in today's uh, Times, actually not the paper itself, it'll probably be in tomorrow's paper edition on Friday, but it's online today about interviewing, I think they interviewed 93 superdelegates on the Democratic side, and uh, a lot of them have kind of pie-in-the-sky fantasies about, how oh, we'll get in there, and we'll have the first vote, and Sanders won't win a majority, and then we'll do all of these things to kind of make Bloomberg the nominee, even though he came in second or third, or we'll get, we'll draft a Michelle Obama to, to run as Joe Biden's running mate, or we'll get Kamala Harris to be the nominee. And, and then the most incredible of all was Tom Friedman had a column that's gotten a ton of <laughs> yes. Facebook pickup where he says, Oh, basically run every single person who's running uh, as a kind of team of rivals and <laughs> they'll win in a landslide. I mean, this is really just fantasy time talk. And again, I get it. Sanders is going to be. If he ends up getting the nomination, it, it could be a, a real disaster. But uh, as we discussed in our podcast last week, and as Bill pointed out, you know, these are the rules we have made. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, we, no, we, no, we, no, we, no, 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 uh, no. No, no, no? Uh, yes, these are the rules we have made. But one of the rules is that you need a majority of the delegates eligible to vote on a particular vote in order to be deemed the nominee. Where is it written that if you show up with 38% of the delegates, that you have somehow earned or won the nomination? This is not a question of rules. This is a question of political prudence. And the downside of either allowing him to get the nomination or depriving him of the nomination under those circumstances both of those numbers are considerable. Yeah. And then the question is... You want to, Can you spell that out a little bit? Because I think people would be interested in hearing because there are, uh, or I will if, you, if you'd prefer not to, but there, there are real downsides to both those scenarios. Of course there are. And yeah. so, and, and I'm, not, I'm not sure I could say with courtroom confidence that one would be more costly to the Democratic Party and its nominees up and down the ballot than the other. And the reason I can't say that, don't know for sure, is that I don't know what share of Sanders' disappointed followers would take a walk and either stay home or vote for the the 2020 version of Jill Stein, which mm -hmm. for all I know is Jill Stein. Right. right. Who knows the answer to that question? Is it the case that not just opposition to Trump, but deep antipathy to Trump will function in 2020 the way deep antipathy did in 2016 to Hillary Clinton, bringing Republicans who would never have considered voting for Donald Trump in the end to very reluctantly vote for him. We don't know the answer to that question. Right. And I, the, other, the other part we don't know is if you nominate Bernie with his 38%, uh, and he goes on to lose, you then have Bernie people in all the important... First of all, you risk the, the uh, House, um, and you have all Bernie people in all the key positions within the party and within the state organizations, and uh, they are really... Um, they, they come to dominate the party, um, even though they did not win 
anything close to a majority to the degree that parties still matter, which is debatable. Uh, but but let's let's talk uh, for a minute. I, I'll, I'll resist the urge to go after Elizabeth Warren, though I, she really she's yes, so she's irritating. So oh, she's so bad. And that business about kill it. Oh, anyway. I but 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 I'm going to leave that aside because um, I want to talk about uh, the uh, New ha- uh, the uh, South Carolina primary, which is in two days. Um, Bill, uh, right now Biden holds a comfortable lead. Uh, but of course, in primary polling, you can never say it's comfortable because primary polls are notoriously poor. Um, but do you think that if he, you know, what would be the number that you would say he has to win by for this to change the perception of the race? Well, it's not clear to what extent anything would change the perception of the race at this point. I'm an agnostic on that question. Powerful forces are in motion. And I'm not convinced that South Carolina is going to have as big an impact on Super Tuesday and the race to come as a lot of pundits are. But if you're asking me to summarize the conventional wisdom as to what would give him a bump, it's a double-digit victory. Mm -hmm. The most recent poll, which I'm not sure I believe, put him up by 20 points. If any, but if you look at the average of the of the past four or five days, it's comfortably into double digits. That would be enough to keep his campaign going. But here's the here's the problem, and a very good article on the front page of today's New York Times pointed it out. He has bet, Joe Biden has bet the farm on South Carolina. He has very little on the ground presence. In any of the Super Tuesday states, he spent almost nothing on advertising, either traditional or online, because he hasn't been able to do so. He He's didn't just, have much to spend. No, that's the point. He hasn't been he <laughs> right. hasn't been able to do so, and so this is almost a textbook experiment, right? To what extent can name recognition plus whatever bump you get from a handsome victory in South Carolina overcome? the absence of any vestige of traditional organization and effort in 14 states. We have Donald no Trump idea. had no ground game whatsoever in 2016. Nothing. Right. But what he had was the intensity of Bernie Sanders supporters. That is that's true. what Biden does yes. not have. Well, right. that's true. And tons of, of free media attention. And tons of free can, media. Can I, can I just jump in? Because yeah. you might be interested. It's kind of interesting that this is, of course, a snapshot, and this stuff is changing every day or two with new polls. And then, of course, we have South Carolina and Super Tuesday within a week. But uh, Nate Silver at 538 uh, has been incorporating a bunch of new polls, even just this morning, Thursday. And a lot of them have been very good for Biden. And so his calculations, again, it's a snapshot, but as of today, his his calculation of the odds of uh, Sanders getting a majority of delegates uh, yesterday was 46 uh, uh, percent and with only with a 42 percent chance of nobody getting a majority. What we were talking about before. And as of today, Sanders is down to 31 percent with a 50 percent chance of no one getting a majority. That's just in one day. And at the same time, uh, you know, uh, 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 Silver has Sanders at a 59% chance of getting at least a plurality, 
with Biden up to 31% chance of getting a, of a plurality. So if, if we can look at a snapshot about momentum, um, it appears that Biden is on a bit of an upswing. Maybe people thought he did well in the debate the other night. If he does get into the double digits in South Carolina, maybe we will see a momentum, a real momentum shift. So, and by, by the way, we haven't mentioned Bloomberg and all of this. Bloomberg is continuing to spend a ton of money in the uh, Super Tuesday states. I don't think he's you know, going to win any. But uh, if Biden were to do well, if Biden comes out of South Carolina with double digits and uh, Bloomberg ends up not really winning anywhere uh, in Super Tuesday, then you have the possibility that Bloomberg could do something which would be very helpful. And that is to throw his support behind Biden to try to stop Bernie. Um, he does have organization. And if he could turn that over, uh, granted, Super Tuesday will already have occurred, but it, but it's still, you know, that, that is something that could happen. This is looking a lot like the 2016 Republican primary, mm -hmm. where you had a lot of other candidates. No one could rally around an individual. They all wanted to stay in the race to be the main counterweight to the leader. Even if Sanders does not have a majority, it's going to be tough to deny him the nomination if his plurality has a big enough individual lead over the others. I mean, you know, he may only have 40% of the delegates, but if nobody else has more than 15%, well, it's really right. hard to throw your weight towards somebody else. What it can come down to as well is, is there a significant anti-Bernie contingent in the Democratic Party? Is there is there is never Bernie real? And I don't really see it. And as a matter of fact, there was a, a, a poll by Washington Post ABC News recently that said, you know, never Sanders is is about one tenth of the Democratic Party at this point. Uh, as a matter, and, and in fact, only one in six Democrats consider Bernie Sanders too liberal to get the nomination, which is amazing because Bernie Sanders is not even a Democrat, right? <laughs> and yet, only and yet, eighty three percent of Democrats do not consider him too liberal, and about ninety percent consider him acceptable. For the Democrats to stop to stop Sanders. Even without getting a majority, they need somebody to come at least close in the delegate count, and they need to have a never Sanders. I don't see it right now. Well, I could, I could argue that one the other way, Great. Uh, because at the end of the day, as the convention approaches, assuming for the sake of argument that Sanders doesn't have a majority, isn't close to a majority, and no one else is either, uh, many of the projections indicate that Biden's delegate total plus Bloomberg's delegate total would actually be more than Sanders' delegate total. And so I think the question of whether Biden, rather Bloomberg should get out or stay in is not an easy one because there's no guarantee that if he got out, the people who have been voting for him would necessarily vote for Biden. But I guarantee you, if there are three people standing at the end of this mm. and Biden plus Bloomberg equals a majority, uh, those delegates, to the extent that Bloomberg controls them, uh, are going to go Biden's way and not Sanders' way. So we're not, you know, we're not looking at national polls and making calculations on that. This is a rules-governed process where the delegate total is what matters and not what people in the Democratic Party who many of most of whom wouldn't even have participated in the primaries are going to think. 
What about the racial element? Um, you know, we had we had Iowa, New Hampshire, very white states. We had Nevada, which is has a large Hispanic population, not such a large African American vote. And now we go to South Carolina. If Biden does very well in South Carolina and then is able to uh, do very well on Super Tuesday because of African American voters, doesn't that deny to Bernie Sanders some of the moral authority that any Democratic nominee needs? Well, look what happened in 2016. That was the difference in 2016. Yeah, right. yeah it right. was. Um, now, right, but um, yeah. So, it, but it was uh, it was just a two man, if you'll forgive the expression, race in 2016. So. Um, everybody who was anti Hillary also parked with Bernie, and uh, and even still, he wasn't wasn't able to do it. But yeah, I don't know. I I, I think the um, I think it's possible that you will see a tremendous amount if if and this may not happen, but if Biden does very well in South Carolina, you could see a huge amount of commentary, um, huge number of African American uh, representatives and others saying, you know, this is you know. The, this is where we belong, you know, this is our party and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And we haven't been heard from until now, but, you know, this is our voice. I don't know. It's it's uh, that part of it, I think, hasn't quite been factored in. Um, well, by the time we reconvene, we'll know the answer to we'll all of it. We'll know the answer to all of it. Yeah, and, it all and, goes and, very fast. And by the way, so it goes unbelievably slowly and then way too fast. That's yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like Ernest Hemingway on going bankrupt. Exactly, right? exactly, <laughs> exactly. In, uh, yeah. One thing we haven't talked about is what happens with Buttigieg and Klobuchar out mm-hmm. of uh, Super Tuesday. And if they continue to perform as badly as they have so far with minority voters, they have to just. Dis- they're, they're not going to be it, and they're, they they got to get out of the way. And frankly, it probably means that neither of them would uh, be the best choice for a vice presidential uh, person. I mean, right. they, uh, so it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And and I don't know what Elizabeth Warren's game is because the more she talks, as I've continued to say, the more she loses support. Uh, and her performance in this last debate, uh, I thought, was just simply awful. Look, I have my doubts about the virtues of democracy, um, and, <laughs> and 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 frankly, one of the reasons is that when you look at the way, the, as you just mentioned, Bill, you know, you never know if this candidate drops out whether the support will go to another moderate or whether it'll go in a completely different direction. It sure looks sometimes as if voters make their uh, express their preferences based on the most trivial things. Oh. I like the way he seems like a nice guy or somebody I'd like to have a beer with or um, she seems strong or whatever it is. I mean, it has nothing to do with are they prepared to do the job of president of the United States, which is to govern, to make decisions, to work with others, to to be competent, not to be a a child throwing temper tantrums. Uh, This is why my my colleague and longtime co-author Elaine Kmark in today's Washington Post published a piece, uh, the bottom line of of which is the political parties need to bring peer review back into the nominating process. Right. There needs to be a way for party professionals and people who need to get elected for a living to weigh in in a much earlier and more decisive way than they do now. 
Mm-hmm. And she's not the only one who's thinking along those lines. But do they are they going to have much influence over? I mean, at, the, at this point, if they do weigh in, the people are so mad at the establishment right now that unless you're actually changing the rules of the nominating process, well, that's, are they going to be ignored? No. This was a forward-looking article. That is, how do we need to change the system in the next cycle and the ones after that in order to build in a more formal and influential role for peer review. Now, that would mean that would mean bringing to an end the 50-year cycle that started with the McGovern-Fraser yeah, Commission yeah. in 1970. And right? it's easier to make the case, you know, for further democratization than to make the case right. against democratization and for more the, elitism, which is basically what we're arguing for. Well, what this means is that we finally have to say no and mean it to Al Smith, <laughs> who famously said that the only cure for the ills of democracy is more, more democracy. democracy. Wrong. Wrong. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I, the I, founders also would have disagreed strongly with Al Smith. With the Damon. I mean, the only the only thing I would add on this is that um, as uh, someone with a, a, a kind of a background. Um, uh, in political philosophy, uh, not that different than Bill's. Uh, I wholeheartedly think this is a fabulous idea, but uh, I will mm. add that I also believe it is uh, utterly futile. <laughs> that Al Smith always wins, and uh, especially <laughs> tell that to Herbert Hoover. Yeah, well, <laughs> except in I... <laughs> just in just in that line of his, yes, uh, yes, and yes. especially. Especially in the age of uh, social media, I mean, the democratization of everything is upon us, and really, populism is just hyper democracy. And uh, I just don't see there being any uh, any leverage to kind of to move against the people in that respect. Uh, so uh, again, so we're making a kind of wager, maybe with me a little more pessimistic on it. So we'll we'll see as things unfold over the years to come. But I, can't, I'm can't quite resist, skeptical. Can't resist telling the story um, about a dirty trick that was played on Al Smith because when he was running for president as the first Catholic to uh, get a major party nomination. Um, the Lincoln Tunnel between New Jersey and New York was then under construction. And the uh, Republicans circulated a picture of this tunnel with, uh, I think, with Smith's face superimposed on it. And they said that this was a tunnel that was going to go straight from Washington, D.C. to the Vatican <laughs> if, he were, if he were to get the nomination. Um, so, so that's how, you know, I mean, d dirty tricks are not, are not new. But, uh, but, but it also gave rise to the great line that um, John F. Kennedy, who actually was the first Roman Catholic elected, as president many years later, 1960, uh, to use after, uh, when uh, he gave a little talk after he won the election. And he said, I am reminded of the story about Al Smith, who, after he lost the presidential election, uh, said, I have just sent a telegram to the Pope in Rome. It was one word. It said, unpack. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, a few more little, um, a few more things that I cannot let go of. Um, one is, this should be more widely known. All right, so here's Bernie Sanders saying he wants to create Medicare for all. He wants to force everyone to give up their private health insurance. The state that Bernie hails from, little Vermont, attempted to impose 
single-payer health care. Starting back in 2011, the, the candidate for governor ran on this, and they had, you know, uh, Medicare for everybody. They, I think they, was gonna, they were going to call it the Green Mountain Plan or something. And it was successful in at the ballot box. And then they attempted to work out the details. And how much were they going to have to raise taxes? And how were they going to cover everybody? And on and on. And it dragged on forever. And in 2014, they gave up. They announced defeat. And they said, we can't do this. Sorry. Um, so never daunted. Uh, Bernie just ignores all that. One more little detail. During uh, his various media rounds this week, uh, one of the awful things, I wrote a whole column about Bernie's history of saying nice things about uh, about communists, which I commend to you. He was not a liberal during the Cold War. He was a communist sympathizer. He was a hard leftist. Big difference. Um, but, uh, but one of the really sort of amusing things that came out this week, from a certain point of view, amusing is that he was asked about China and repression, whatever, and he said he wanted to make sure we understood that China lifted more people out of poverty than any other nation. Now, this is hilarious because, of course, how did China lift people out of poverty? <laughs> exactly by reversing its decades-long attachment to communist principles and adopting a more free market approach, allowing free markets to thrive in uh, in a limited way. Obviously, they're not a completely free economy. But it was those reforms uh, by Deng Xiaoping that allowed China to lift so many millions of people out of poverty. And, and the ideologically blind Bernie Sanders, even to this day, cannot see what really happened. And he wants to give credit to communism, basically, for for that uh, for that reform. All right. This <laughs> this edition <of laughs> is Mona's pet peeves. <laughs> well, and I, I want to add on, true. <laughs> on the healthcare point that yeah, v Vermont passed Medicare for all without any plan to pay for it. What they said is, we'll pass it now and we'll figure out the pay-fors later. They came out with the pay-fors. It was like an 11.5% employer payroll tax. It was other huge taxes. It collapsed. Every state that has also looked at single payer has rejected it. Colorado, California. As soon as they get the pay, the, to the pay-fors, the whole thing falls apart. And I'll add that having looked at health policy, I still have never seen a fully funded Medicare for All plan. Never. I mean, I've seen plans that claim to be fully funded, mm -hmm. and it's all ma it's all magic asterisks and impossible assumptions. I have never seen a Medicare for All plan that the Congressional Budget Office or any non you know neutral third party would score as remotely paid for. It doesn't exist. And one of the things that Bernie Sanders says is he's going to pay all the doctors and hospitals in the country at the Medicare rate. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, I mean, is way lower than what private there plans pay. There goes our healthcare and, yeah, system. I mean, and, and they're assuming that this will have no effects on the supply of medical care. Here's, here's a little, uh, you know, for those listening who've had economics, we're going to increase the demand for healthcare right. by adding all of this, you know, new individuals and make everything free. And then we're going to constrain the supply of healthcare by cutting payment rates 40%. Now, what happens to prices when demand goes up and supply goes down? Yeah. Yes. This is, th these are plans that could not pass high school economics. Right. But also, I mean, what, what happens in that situation is you have rationing. 
you're going to have massive rationing. I mean, this idea that we're all going to have this wonderful gold-plated healthcare is just crazy. We're going to have, you know, if there is this kind of system imposed, it's going to lead to massive rationing of healthcare. And he constantly says, you're right, it's Mona's crotchets. I agree. I confess. But he constantly says we have to have what all the rest of the world has. No, he is not proposing what the rest of the world has. All of these other countries have co-pays, they have limits, they have various things. Um, and they and, allow and, private and insurance. They allow, and, and some of them allow, many of them allow private insurance to some extent. And uh, so, so his plan would be unique in the world. Not only is it unique because, again, it, it abolishes private health care, it abolishes co-pays, no other, one, no other country has done that. But countries that have even come close to single payer, they they don't have the U.S. health infrastructure. What they did is they a lot of them would pass single payer back 50 years ago when you had a small health infrastructure, and then they contain constrained the health infrastructure over the next 50 years. Nobody started out with the health system that cost 20% of GDP, with all the hospitals, all the technology, all the drug research, and then tried to shrink it. That's not, you can't do it on the broad American infrastructure. You have to start with a small infrastructure and then constrain its growth over 50 years. Nobody's done what Sanders is proposing. But you're not saying it's impossible to reform our system. Oh, of course not. Right, so. No, you just, you can't, you can't impose European payment rates on an American health infrastructure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Having said this, uh, I guess I am not entirely comfortable with the proposition that in healthcare we have a sector of the economy that is driven by market forces to the same extent as is true elsewhere, uh, and uh, and so and so the assumption that anything we do now that's significant by way of regulation on the price front will have this enormous enormous ripple effect on supply. I guess I'm less confident of that prediction than you are, Brian. It depends on how, how aggressive. I mean, I think you can, we can adjust payment rates, I think, um, hospitals, physicians. I think payment rates can be adjusted. I think we can do more um, to encourage, you know, I- innovative approaches. But I think just the root canal approach of Sanders of let's just let's just cut payment rates 40% across the board and, and hope they adjust. That's not that's not realistic, but I agree with you. That doesn't mean we can't do anything. And and there is a whole lot of daylight between where we are now and where Bernie Sanders would like us to be. And somewhere in that wide zone is a point of equipoise where there can be some constraints on price escalations without having the kinds of disastrous effects for supply, for research, et cetera, that the hospitals and the drug companies allege. And what drives me crazy is that any time even modest reforms to, let us say, the ways in which drug prices are now now set, and I think that verb is the right one, they are set. It's just that they're not being set by government. They're being set by negotiations between the drug companies and the benefit managers. And, well, Medicare has a big role in that, too, right. and because so, they're a big you know, and, and so what drives me crazy is that every time some modest reform is proposed, you know, the hospitals and the drug companies all say, you'll put us out of business. I don't believe that. 
Okay, here, here's what I would say what drives me crazy. I mean, I understand your point of view, and I'm, I'm not saying that doctors and hospitals are pure and that they, you know, are just, you know, in this for the best possible outcome for all concerned. They're self-interested, no question about it. Um, but, it, at least partly, I mean, I also think, you know, that's not their only motivation. Um, but what also drives me crazy is that none of the reforms that you see discussed involve introducing more competition into the system than we currently have. I mean, competition lowers prices. It does this in every other realm of life. Um, and even in the medical world, um, in areas where there is no insurance component and no government component, or very limited government component, like plastic surgery right. or you know eye Le surgery or LASIK. whatever, LASIK, the prices have come drastically down since the technology was first introduced, which you find in every other area. Computer prices come down, television prices come down, car prices, whatever it is. So, um, it, you know, the, the, the lack of competition, the fact that we have this kludged up system where the state plays an enormous role uh, through regulation and through payments and the third parties play a huge role and the consumer is, is 15 steps removed from the supplier. And so competition never gets a chance to operate. I mean, we don't have free market principles at work in, in our medical system. We never have. And a large part of that is that we have since World War II, and we've talked about this before, that it was unions who negotiated health care uh, insurance when they had wage price controls, and, and suddenly we decided that it was a good idea for an employer to choose our health care force. So there, there's never been a market in health care. And you're absolutely right, Mona, in those specialties where there is a market and things like LASIK or cosmetic surgery, the market sort of works. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that we're going to go to a market-based system here, but but to suggest that it's the you know evil market that has somehow dri driven these prices up, it isn't. Well, but, but you've picked, you know, I think we're going to keep on having this debate as long as this podcast <laughs> endures. But, you know, by talking about cosmetic surgery, you have picked arguably and I realize I'm showing some gender bias mm -hmm. here, the most elective portion of the healthcare service. Let's take the other end, the emergency room. Mm -hmm. How are you going to have competition between or among emergency rooms when the patient has usually no say? You don't. You but don't. You, but, but, but that's a, a small fraction. No, I mean, we do have some competition with emergency rooms. They're, they're called the, the walk-in clinics. And in fact, people who used to, when I was growing up, we did not have health insurance. I grew up poor. And if you got really sick, you went to the emergency okay. room. Now you can go to a walk-in clinic if you're sick. And maybe, you know, if you're in a car accident or, you know, some, you, know, you get stabbed or shot or something, you're going to end up in the emergency room. But, you know, if you've got even the flu, you can go to a walk-in clinic. It's a heck of a lot cheaper. And that is competition. Could I tell you a personal story? Mm -hmm. This just happened to me last year. Uh, I got what I thought was the flu, and I thought it was going away. Uh, and I, when it didn't, after three or four days, I went into a walk-in clinic, and it was over the weekend, so they didn't have an x-ray machine, but they thought it might be worse than the flu. Uh, and when I presented myself on Monday morning and did the x-ray, uh, they found out that I had double pneumonia and my oxygen intake level was way below what you need in order to sustain life. And, and, and they said, they looked at me and my wife and said, 
you better get to the emergency room immediately. My wife said, well, can we go home to pick up some clothes? And they said, no, go now, right? And uh, so we went to the closest emergency room. What else would you do in those circumstances? And the idea that we'd be doing price comparisons among emergency Hi. rooms, it's mm -hmm. preposterous. So in those situations in which, by definition, you're not in a market system, then there needs there need to be some exogenous forces on the system. But good for you for going to the walk-in clinic first, yeah. because most people would not have double pneumonia, and and they were able to give you a quick diagnosis, and get you to where you needed not that to be. Quick. Yeah, you had not to wait quick. till Monday. Right, no. and and my point stands. There is no way that that is going to be a market-driven system. At, well, at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're healthy. I'm glad it sounds like you did go straight there. <laughs> um, not not all individuals have to be market discriminating for the market system to work. If enough people ahead of time know the diff, you know, this is an expensive place, this is an inexpensive place, the the net prices will adjust on their own. Like over time an emergency room will know we can't get away with charging 10 times more than the next place. So I don't think I don't think each individual has to do the price comparison in a way the market should gravitate a little bit on its own with just a few people having market knowledge. Well, that would be oh. an interesting question, and then I'll shut yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, because well, the balance of my time is negative. But I wonder if you did a survey of a thousand people in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area, how many would be able to give you any accurate information about the relative cost of equidistant emergency rooms? Oh, oh! Can I just mention yeah, that, that right everybody, now. none, everybody, not, not right now. everybody needs to listen to an econ talk podcast on this topic, <laughs> which is fantastic because we talked about. Um, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the guest, which I don't remember right now. It was a doctor, but um, but they were talking about how certain employers who who self insure um, were able to call around, for example, for for not for the situation where it's an acute situation where you have a you have to get to an emergency room, but say for a birth, a normal healthy birth, no complications. He called around this this employer called around different hospitals and asked about the price of how much do you charge and he got such wildly different um, numbers you know one hospital charges twenty five thousand dollars for a healthy birth the other one charges five thousand dollars for a healthy birth and by and, the and they had the same uh health outcomes okay so what did the employer do he couldn't ask his employees please go to this hospital because he didn't want to be in the position of forcing them to do that but what he did do was he said Anybody who delivers at this hospital, I will guarantee a year's worth of baby wipes and diapers. <laughs> and it turned out to be a great boon for the employer. He saved a huge amount of money and uh, the patients were happy. And, and that was the market at work. Now, we have to figure out how to make well, that more possible on uh, more levels. Can I pick up on that? Because I sat on the board of directors of a small company, technology company in Colorado. We were self-insured. And what we did was we hired a firm that would, after the fact, after somebody went in and delivered and, you know, char it was charged too much, would get on the telephone and negotiate since it was the company that was paying. It was not a third-party insurer. It was the company that was paying. And what they guaranteed was that they would bring our costs down, and they did, and they more than paid for their uh, for their consultation resulting. So you, there, there are ways hospitals will negotiate if faced with the prospect that maybe they won't, you know, get paid at all if mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. they don't come down uh, to a reasonable 
And as usual, the government is a bad actor here. They uh, they cooperate with um, hospitals to keep competition down by, for example, requiring that people have to get permits to open hospitals in certain neighborhoods from the state. And guess who, you know, it tends to be influencing the, the decisions of the local uh, politicians who have to make this decision, the, the boards of the hospitals, that are the already existing hospitals who don't want the competition. Anyway, this free market podcast has been brought to you by... <laughs> <laughs> this is our wonkiest ever. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. I, we... And Brian, it is not your fault. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, we're sponsored, we're sponsored by a caffeine pills. Please don't buy them. <laughs> All right. I, I wanted to get to the... Uh, COVID-19 uh, virus. We don't have that much more time, but let's just do some quick observations. Uh, the president gave a press conference yesterday evening um, appointing Mike Pence to be the, um, the czar of, uh, of the coronavirus. Uh, anybody want to make the case? Uh, Damon, you want to make the case that uh, everything's under control? No, you make whatever case you want. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I tend to, uh, to not be that worried about this, at least in my own case. Uh, but I am very, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, I, I do, I do think that it, a lot of this is sort of, uh, a little bit of overblown, uh, hype. The, the disease does not appear to be, uh, it, it, it's precisely, there was a very good piece in the Atlantic this week, uh, about the, uh, epidemiology here and how the very fact, the, the reason it's spreading as much as it is around the world is precisely because it isn't that fatal. And so it sounds like it's going to be the equivalent of a new kind of flu, which is not great and people will die, but whether it's going to, uh, justify full on panic. I, I don't see it yet. However, I will say that as of this moment, around 3 p.m. on Thursday, the stock market is down yet another 800 points. That will make, I think, on the week so far, around 3,000 points down on the Dow. That's, that's not small. <laughs> Uh, if, if, so I would say, as always, I will pitch to the kind of political angle on the, on this question that all of our prognostications about the election coming up have as a background the fact that the economy is doing very well, unemployment is very low, uh, people are optimistic. If, it turns out that the coronavirus and fears about the Trump administration and whether it actually is capable of handling a crisis, whether it can be trusted, whether, uh, as I've also seen today, uh, we're going to end up uh, having the, uh, the, the, the new Pence czar office take control of public statements by the CDC and run them through a kind of political shop to make Trump happy that we're not, you know, saying the wrong thing. Uh, I could imagine that becoming something that actually plays a fairly big role in this election coming up so i'll and, leave it at that. linda yeah, I, I, yeah. question for you <laughs> yes um so the 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 investors on wall street are not epidemiologists correct um they are people who are concerned about the economy and about their money and therefore they tend to respond with panic sometimes to, to things to, to what seems like it could be bad news or for instability and for economic disruption 
are we, oh, I mean, it's like a lot of people are overreacting to the market, don't you think? I mean, the market is supposed to worry and well, get all flustered. Yeah, and, and I called my financial advisor this morning. I am at the point that I will soon be drawing on the money that I have saved, and I don't have, you know, any kind of other normal pension. I just have my savings to live on. And uh, we decide we're not going to do anything. We'll just sort of wait it out. Um, it's you know, it will recover. Uh, how quickly it will recover, I don't know. Maybe it'll be months. Maybe it'll be uh, a while. It took, uh, you know, about three years, I think, after the decline in 2008 to fully recover in in, uh, in many areas. And so I, I don't know, but I will tell you one thing. Watching that press conference yesterday made me realize that for all of the reasons that I oppose Trump on ideological grounds and on what he does to democracy, incompetence is what makes me really fear when we have a situation where you do need leadership. I mean, Mike Pence got up there and he spent his whole you know, first five minutes obsequiously kissing uh, the ring of, of Donald Trump. So did Alex talk- Azar. And so did Alex Azar. They all did. I mean, I wanted some hard facts. And Trump himself was all over the place. He knows nothing. I mean, and particularly for somebody who's a germaphobe, he was making pronouncements that you know had no basis in, in reality. I don't know what's going to happen. I will tell you that I'm not very worried. I have plane tickets and I'm going to Spain soon. And there are cases of coronavirus in Spain, uh, unless it, you know, becomes huge in Spain uh, between now and 10 days from now when I leave, uh, I intend to go. I think people have to go about living their lives and, and you know, washing your hands and behaving normally and, and you know, stop worrying like the, the sky is falling. The sky is not falling, but here are some basic facts. The death rate for the ordinary flu is 0.01%. That's on a very large N. Uh, According to the World Health Organization this morning, the death rate from the coronavirus so far has been 3.4% of the diagnosed cases. Uh, so the idea that this is just business as usual, uh, I think, ought to be subjected to the same kind of scrutiny that we're subjecting budget numbers and the cost of Bernie Sanders program. Uh, I think this is well worth investing a fair amount of precautionary money to make sure that it doesn't become an epidemic in the United States or a pandemic in the world. Well, I absolutely agree with you on that, Bill. But the fact is, we don't know what the end is uh, with this virus because China may very well not have a good grasp on how long this virus was active and how many people actually contracted it. I mean, we have the case of the guy now in California who contracted it, who, you know, didn't have direct contact with somebody. So we don't know how how many cases there are out there. And yes, it may be much more uh, like the Spanish flu. And if it got to that point, we'd all be in trouble. Uh, but, you know, it's um, the idea that that everybody should stop doing what they're doing 
and stop their travel plans and take their money out of the stock market. That kind of panic doesn't help anybody. But we should invest and we should. I mean, what I would have liked to have seen from Trump is a statement that he was going to support a massive infusion, that in fact, he was going to bring a group of scientists in, that he was going to get the pandemic person back on the National Security Council. That would have been the kind of response I would have liked to have seen. The, the part of the press conference that kind of disturbed me a little bit, and I'll say at the outset, my wife works at the NIH, oh. is when he was asked by Jeff Stein of the Washington Post, how does this square with the big budget cuts you've proposed to the agencies? And Trump said, well, it actually makes sense because there's no point staffing these agencies when there's nothing to do. (laughs) But now that there is a pandemic, this is when you bring people on. I'm a smart businessman. I don't staff uh, organizations until they have something happening. And I have to say, with my wife working at NIH, (laughs) the idea that they're all just sitting around playing solitaire waiting for a (laughs) pandemic to occur (laughs) was a a little offensive. That may explain why he didn't do so well in business, too, by the way. Uh, Imagine applying that to the U.S. military. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We'll mobilize until there's a war. We'll we'll hire them when we need them. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get those. We'll get Hessians. Um, (laughs) um, So what I, I... too, uh, am not in a panic mode. I, you know, there have been a lot of epidemics in the last, you know, 15 years that we've seen come and go, uh, more than 15 years, and uh, none of them turned out to be as terrible as initially feared, including Ebola. I remember the terror about Ebola, and in fact, the president still remembers some of the misinformation that circulated about Ebola, which he repeated at his press conference yesterday. Um, but in any event. Um, there are things, though, that are worrisome uh, this time. And one of the things that I had not been aware of until now is that the U.S. gets about 80% of our antibiotics from Chinese suppliers. And it's not that I'm worried that at some point China will say, ha-ha, we're going to cut off your antibiotics just for the fun of seeing you all suffer. But in the event of a really catastrophic uh, outbreak, uh, they could be not in a position to supply those drugs. And then we'd really be in a bad situation. So that's something that we ought to be thinking about going forward about, you know, the supply chains for certain sort of, you know, very um, critical things like drugs. Um, uh, finally, um, Rush Limbaugh weighed in this week. <laughs> telling his listeners that, uh, the, that the, this was no worse, this disease is no worse than the common cold, um, and that it was being ginned up as a worry uh, by people who are trying to destroy Donald Trump. Now, a lot of people are, have their hair on fire about this, and they're saying it's just outrageous for Limbaugh to be circulating this kind of nonsense. Um, I actually don't see it that way. I think actually this is something that is so absurd on its face that it stands a good chance of discrediting the people who circulate it. I mean, as we saw in China, um, there were there was a lot of good reporting uh, that the people in Wuhan who were sitting in their homes, uh, unable to get food, unable to, uh, to to see their families over the holiday, etc., and were being told by their government that everything was being done for their welfare, 
said, what kind, oh, and sorry, and most important, when they saw that doctor who had first mm-hmm. alerted the world uh, and the authorities to the existence of this virus, who was um, hounded by the state authorities and who eventually did die of the disease himself. Some of the people in China, were, you know, they're watching all this and they're saying, how could a benevolent government do these things? How could they do these things to us? When you are f- suffering it personally, uh, it, it has a way of cutting through the BS. And uh, if this virus does spread widely, I think you're going to have a hard time convincing even Rush Limbaugh's listeners that it was a scheme, that it was all disinformation cooked up by the, uh, by the DNC. Okay. Um, unless anybody has anything else on that subject, let's go to our final segment, which is things we want to draw more attention to. Um, I will start. Uh, because it's related. This week, uh, 45 reporters from the news division of the Wall Street Journal sent a letter to management asking them to apologize to the Chinese state for an editorial that appeared by Walter Russell Mead titled, China is the Real Sick Man of Europe. Now, they said this is very offensive because China used to be called the sick man of Asia, and that was a, that was disparaging. And until you know modern times, China was uh, was the victim. Blah 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 blah. Well, the fact is that China does throw its weight around. We see this all the time now. It's extending its tendrils into the entire world, and into the free minds and free institutions around the world, including the National Basketball Association and uh, and other. Um, other features of American life for a great newspaper like the Wall Street Journal for 45 reporters to say that we need to um, to placate the Chinese government for a, an editorial expressing an opinion is very, very worrisome. Linda? Well, I have another Wall Street Journal uh, uh, article to mention. It is a commentary piece that was written in yesterday's paper by Jim Glassman. It's called, Where's That 3% Growth? And it is about the Trump tax plan, which Glassman was all in favor of, thought it was going to spur enormous uh, growth. And of course, it has not done so. And even Jim Glassman is willing to admit that. And one of the things he points to is one of the reasons it didn't spur growth is that the United States population is shrinking. You know, we are getting smaller. And why is that? We're going to get smaller because of declines in immigration. And we have, we're having fewer births over the last couple of years uh, than we've had previously, and that is going to have an impact. And with less people coming in, one of the things that drives our economy is an expanding workforce, and we don't produce enough new young workers. We do need to bring in people from other places. Damon? Uh, I think I will uh, leave my uh, recommendation at what I mentioned earlier in uh, the podcast today, Thomas Friedman's column, Uh, not in a positive sense, but in an amusing sense. Um, I I really, I I found it quite, uh, quite funny. And if you read it, imagining you're reading uh, The Onion, I think you might like it too. It's titled (laughs) Dems, You Can Defeat Trump in a Landslide. Um, And it it really is something. So I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, first, a uh, no, let me scrap that in the interest of time. 
this morning, a you know a conservative evangelical thinker and a longtime Republican operative, uh, Pete Weiner, sent around a short note and linked to a video of Joe Biden in a South Carolina church, uh, comforting a minister who had lost his wife in the mass shooting oh. in South Carolina a couple of years ago. And, you know, and, and Pete, who probably doesn't agree with Joe Biden on anything, said, in effect, this is an authentic example of Christian grace. Mm. And I thought it was very big of him to do that. Not surprising, but very big of him to do that. Pete is my friend and colleague at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and we will have him as our guest very soon. And now we'll hear from our current guest, Brian. Well, uh, an article that, that I found interesting that came out a couple years ago was by uh, Yuval Levine, uh, former EPPC, correct? Correct, and and recent guest on this podcast. So, so <laughs> you, you, you all know what I'm about to say. Uh, he had a, uh, an article in The Atlantic on February 9th, Transparency is Killing Congress, mm-hmm. that I, I found to be one of the best articles I've read recently because I spent six years recently working in the Senate, and I completely understand what Yuval was saying, basically that the more we put cameras everywhere in the Senate and in the House, the less actual negotiation is actually happening, the less back and forth there is with members of Congress, because essentially they're all performing for the cameras. And just, you know, I used to sit in meetings with the Senate Finance Committee and Senate Budget Committee behind closed doors. And the members would talk to each other like adults. They would trade policies. They would agree with each other. They would admit weaknesses in their arguments. They would compromise. And then they would go out into the hearing with the cameras rolling and yell at each other and belittle each other. And it's really amazing to see the same senators in two minutes. That camera and the audience are there. And they behave totally different. And what Yuval said is, you need a space to negotiate. You need a space to talk freely. You need a space to explore controversial ideas and throw them out there. And I know we love more democracy, more transparency, but Yuval is a great read. um, and, And he makes a good point. It's called Transparency is Killing Congress. And it was in The Atlantic on February 9th. Wonderful. Linda, you wanted to just I, add something? I need to correct something. Okay. I said the population was declining. The rate of increase is declining. <laughs> Sorry you. about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I no bit my tongue. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, knew, I knew immediately when you, I, I, I just said it wrong. Sorry about that. By the way, another figure to make that same point was none other than the acting chief of staff, Mr. Mick Mulvaney, Correct. when he was safely in London and away yes. from the boss's gaze. Funny yeah. thing about that. <laughs> yes, he, he spoke about the importance of immigration for our economy. And I mean, it was an amazing speech. He also said that Republicans seem to care about deficits only when there's a Democrat in the White House, which is perfectly true. But I was amazed that he said it. Yeah. All right. Thank you all. Till next week. Thanks, Brian, so much. Thank you for yeah. having me. Okay. Take care, everybody. <laughs>